The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Genesis chapter 11, and I know I tell you this all the time, okay, to open with me, but here's a Sunday that you especially need to open your Bible because we're going to be moving around a little bit in the book of Genesis. Uh, And so uh, this is me officially shaming you that if you don't have a Bible open, Find one and open it. Let's look together at the Bible and the book of Genesis in chapter 11 because uh, we are going on something of a tour of 2,000 years worth of biblical history today. Uh, Genesis and chapter 11. And as you're opening there to that portion of scripture there at the beginning of the Bible, just something to kind of order our mindset here as we think about this. We're going to be doing some zooming in and some zooming out. Okay, and just for the sake of interest, I have a curiosity and Google satisfies my curiosity all the time. I want to know just how far can we zoom into things? And I found out this answer. And uh, to explain this, right, a meter is roughly three feet, okay? And one million times smaller than a meter is a micrometer. And 10 million times smaller than that, 10 million micrometers is what the world's most powerful microscope can zoom into to see uh, more narrow than the width of a single hydrogen atom. Okay, I'm not into chemistry, so I don't really care about that. (laughs) But I translate that as saying that's really, 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 really ridiculously small, right? Okay, maybe you like my measurement system better. Okay, now how far can we zoom out? Well... Distances that the Hubble Deep Field, seen by the Hubble Telescope, seen something as 15 billion light years away. How far is 15 billion light years if you do it in miles? Well, 15 billion light years is miles with something like 22 zeros uh, in the midst of that number. Also known in the Hopkins measurement scale as really, 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 really ridiculously far, right? Okay, so... These are staggering numbers, okay? Millions of micrometers, billions of miles, zooming in and zooming out. Well, I say that because, again, the Bible, this morning, we are looking at ways in which it is going to help us uh, zoom out, way out, but also zoom in to very small details as well. Again, we're tracing something of the first 2,000 years of biblical history here, as we see this in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and then we're going to, after zooming out, zoom way in to one half of one verse in Genesis chapter 12. So, I hope you've got your Bible open because we're going on something of a whirlwind this morning and hoping that you'll follow along with me. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon His Word. Our God, we thank You that You give us the Scriptures so that you might form our worldview of the world that we live in, the lives that we have, the God that you are, and what you command from us. We pray, Lord, that as we open up to this first book of the Scriptures, that you would give to us the mind of the Spirit to seek, mark, learn, and inwardly understand the things you've given to us. Lord, may the Spirit rest upon our hearts and minds to illuminate them with understanding so that we might grow today, Lord, we pray in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now hear God's word from Genesis in chapter 11, beginning in verse 27 through the beginning of 
chapter 12. This is the word of God. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Amen. So far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write its truth on our hearts today. And like I said, we're going to be doing some flipping backward. We're mainly going left today into the earlier parts of the book of Genesis. But here we stand at the very beginning of the greatest story ever told. And I want you to hear that as something that is very exciting for us as we go on this journey through the early parts of Genesis to understand the story of Abraham. And I can remember personally for me, uh, that we, we have light bulb moments, don't we? We have light bulb moments where we gain understanding about something maybe that had previously really confused us or troubled us. Maybe we beat our heads against the wall trying to figure something out. Well, when it came to my life and the Bible, I never really got the Old Testament until coming to the understanding of who Abraham is. And the light bulb for me and the Bible, the light bulb for me and the Old Testament was the most basic understanding that the Old Testament itself is really just a family story. The Old Testament is a family story of one family and one man and the promises given to him. You cannot overemphasize the significance of the figure of Abraham to the narrative of not only the Old Testament, but all the Bible itself. And so we begin with Abraham and learn wonder, wonderful things about him, but we want to first understand the world that he is born into, the life that he has, and what's going on around him, and what has transpired in this world that he lives in, our same world. And so as you look to your handout there that's in your bulletin, we're going to divide this up into two sections and... Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is often referred to as the pre-patriarchal narrative, the story of what comes before the patriarchs. And the patriarchs are the family of Abraham, and that begins in chapter 12. And so chapters 1 through 11 is the pre-patriarchal narrative of Genesis, and then from 12 onward is the patriarchal narrative of Genesis. And we want to understand how this fits together. Now again, Maybe you have never heard pre-patriarchal and patriarchal or whatever. Uh, Maybe you're someone who has undertaken to read the Bible this year. And you maybe have read through some of Genesis. 
And you're wondering, okay, what, you know, all these narratives and peoples and dates and numbers and some of these people live a really long time and what's the deal with all of this? We're going to summarize these 11 chapters this morning to provide the context of the world into which Abraham lives and we are introduced to him as. So we're going on this tour together of this pre-patriarchal narrative and you see on your outline there, we're going to look especially at these particular men, the first man, the next man, the 10th, the 19th, and the 20th man. Okay, so again, follow along with me. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 as we look at the very first man, which is, of course, Adam himself. We read in the Bible together that the Lord God formed Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed life into his nostrils. We read that in chapter 1 and also in chapter 2. And the point of Adam, of course, is as the first man, God lives with him in fellowship in the Garden of Eden. And he had the promise of this wonderful life together in God's presence. But we, of course, know the story from Genesis chapter 3 that there's a fall and Adam loses this life. And Adam dies. He dies in two ways. He dies spiritually with regard to his ability to be in God's presence as he is cast out of the garden east of Eden. But he also dies physically because later on we learn that after 930 years, Adam died. Genesis 5.5 tells us that Adam lived for 930 years. But that first man is not given over to death until a particular promise is given. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, there is this promise given to offspring of the man and of the woman. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 says, God cursing the serpent saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so here is God saying in the context of the cursing of the serpent that there will be additional people in the world. That it's not going to be wiped out with Adam and Eve. That there will be additional offspring that will come forth from the womb of Eve. Additional offspring. More children. And so from the first man we find out that there are additional men. Adam and Eve have additional sons, right? In chapter 4, we read about particular men, Cain and Abel. One of the children mentions Cain here this morning. And the, the beating question in chapter 4, if you're really paying attention, is, is, is this going to be the one who is going to obey when Adam failed to obey? When Cain and Abel are introduced, the question that should be on our minds when we're reading that chapter is, is are they going to do what their parents failed to do? Is Cain going to be the one who obeys God where Adam, his father, failed to? And of course, we know that that is not the case. But we see in chapter 4, verse 1, that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Is this, is this the one who will obey? Is this the one who will be righteous where Adam failed to? And the answer, of course, we quickly find out is no. That Cain kills Abel because he's angry that God accepts Abel's sacrifice and Cain's sacrifice is not accepted and Cain is sent away from God's presence. We see that in the text that Cain is sent away. And from this point, you have a spiraling history of the human race. Adam is cast out of the garden. Cain is sent away from God's presence. 
chapter 4 and verse 16 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so just as Adam was sent east out of Eden, Cain goes even further away. And there is this geographic uh, trajectory of the human race moving further and further away from their God. And chapter 5 is like this death bell that rings over and over and over again. These descendants of Adam, every single one of them, except Enoch, who is totally unique, but the rest taste the sting of death that their father Adam has brought into the world. Seth dies, and Enosh dies, and Kenan dies, and Mahalel dies, and Jared dies, and Methuselah dies, and Lamech dies. All these generations of Adam inherit the plague of sin from their father Adam and taste the curse of sin, which is death itself. And the first epic of the human race is a race that is cursed. And from there, we move forward. In chapters 6 through 8, you have this next major epic, and we're introduced to the tenth man. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, we're told that this human race that God has made is indeed a cursed human race. Genesis 6, 5 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. And then we're introduced to this tenth man, Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, the point of chapter 5 was to bring us to this place of chapter 6 because Noah is the tenth descendant of Adam. He is the tenth man. And in chapter 6, we find that God intends to blot out what has been done and, in a sense, recreate his creation. Reconstitute the human race that has been cursed into sin because of Adam and bring about, perhaps, new blessing and new obedience where the previous men have failed. And the flood narratives of Genesis 6 through 9 are this epic re recreation, reconstitution. And the question, of course, is again, is Noah going to be the one? first man failed, the second man failed, and all his generations. But what about the tenth one? Is Noah the new Adam? And after the flood narrative, what you have in chapter 8 and chapter 9 is this sense that God has this new plan. Genesis 8 verse 17 says, Bring with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Also chapter 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's exactly what God told Adam to do, isn't it? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There is this reconstituting of the human race through Noah and Noah's line. But Noah, though believing in God, is still himself a sinner. In Genesis 9, verses 20 and 21, we read about Noah's sin, his drunkenness, and his exposure. We read in verse 29 of Genesis 9 that Noah also died. And the tenth man passes away. 
And so the question of who will inherit the promises of God and experience the blessings of righteousness and peace with God, not the first, not the second, not the tenth. And then you go into this next major epic of biblical history in chapters 10 and 11. And the quick summary of this section here is that Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel tells this epic primeval history of man and its fruitless climax that mankind created by God demands to seek their own glory and insist upon themselves. And so they build this tower to the greatness of their own name to reach heavens. And, and the arrogance and the insolence and the disobedience of this human race intersects God's sovereign rule and his judgment and his providence. And when you come to the end of this section of chapter 11, you are presented with both a world and a human race that is pleased to do without God. Pleased to do without God's rule. Pleased to do without God's fellowship. And the point of Genesis 1 through 11 is that this human race and this world is cursed and destroyed and scattered. Cursed, destroyed, and scattered. The condition of the world Cursed, destroyed, scattered. And it is at this point, in verse 9 of chapter 11, it is at this point that you would think, you know, it seems right that God in his patience would simply run out of that patience and that the judge of all the world should appear and lava erupt from the mountains and pour down and divine wrath petrify the world. And, but that's not what happens, of course. And the burning question here is, what will become of this humanity? What will become of this race of men that God has created that occupy this world that is cursed? What will happen to these people? And the staggering reality that happens here in the transition between chapters 11 and chapters 12 is that a world and a race that mocks and defiles and rejects God is going to find God to be gracious and merciful and kind and patient and forbearing and full of steadfast love. So we find then that these narratives of humanity, these genealogies are not obscure or incidental. They're deeply meaningful because... In chapter 5, we saw that there are 10 generations from Adam to Noah. And in the second half of chapter 11, we find that there are another 10 generations between Noah's son Shem to Abram. There is the connectedness of generations here, as we see now in Genesis 11 and verses 24 and 25, that before the 20th man comes, the 19th man and his name is Terah. Genesis 11 verse 24. Now, when Nahor lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. The 19th man is this man, Terah. And we find him 
having been scattered with all the other races of men from Babel out going east, and his family lives in the ore of the Chaldeans in verse 28. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of, the, of his kindred in ore of the Chaldeans. That's modern-day Babylon, modern-day Turkey. That's where Terah lives. Far out into the east is this man's Terah. And we find that Terah has a son, the 20th man. And his name, of course, is Abram. Okay? So, hope you're keeping up here with this family history, this biblical genealogy. The 20th man himself is named Abram. Genesis 11, verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And it's right here when this epic retelling of the human race experiences this massive pause. Because 11 chapters of Genesis cover some 2,000 years and 20 generations. And for the rest of the book of Genesis, it's going to cover only a hundred, couple hundred years and three generations of this one man's family, which is a clue to say this man, Abraham, who we'll come to know, matters so significantly in the telling of the epic story of the human race, the 20th generation from Adam, Abram. And so we're moving into now this patriarchal narrative of the one man and this one man's family. Now I want you to notice a few details here and then we'll start to uh, you know, unpack just a few points of application because there are some very clear ones here for us. That the plans that God has to set in motion, and we normally think of the story of Abraham starting in chapter 12, but it really begins at the end of chapter 11. The plans that God has for Abraham have been set in place long before Abraham ever knew of it. Notice where it says in verse 31 that Terah took Abram his son and the rest of his house, and it says they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, not expecting anyone to, to know all the geography of the ancient Near East, the story of humanity thus far is a humanity that is moving east, away from Eden. And this is the first time in the Bible that it records westward movement. Back toward Eden. And we have no idea why Terah comes up with the plan to, to move his family. Okay? Usually if you're going to make a move like that, you've got a plan and a purpose and you've talked to your spouse perhaps and you tell the kids, hey, we're, we're packing up and going somewhere else. We have no idea why Terah decides to go from Ur to Canaan. But we do know that his plans to go from Ur to Canaan are interrupted with a pit stop that ends up to be a permanent stop in Haran. Now, why does this matter? Why do you think this detail is in here? Terah left Ur to go to Canaan and stopped in Haran, and we have no idea why, but we will find later on, next week, when we look at the call of Abraham, that Abram, the son of Terah, 
has already been on a journey west with his father, Terah, who started in the Chaldeans of Ur and moving westward but stopped in Haram. And so when God, in chapter 12, is going to call Abram to go to Canaan, it is to a land that he has already heard of in a direction that he was already previously heading in such a way as we can say that God is preparing Abram for what he will call him to do before the call is even issued. Now, what does this mean? Abram doesn't have a clue. He's just going because his dad says it's time to go. But God has a purpose, doesn't he? Abraham is being prepared by God. God is constantly preparing his people. And the book of Ephesians chapter 2 says that God is preparing good works for us to do as well. Now, here's, here's the point quickly. I think we can take this, take this home, take it to the bank. It's very clear, right? Your plan for your life <laughs> may have been one thing. And maybe it looks something like you thought, or maybe it doesn't, or somewhere in between. Me? I wanted to be an architect. Come to find out, in God's providence, I'm terrible at math. <laughs> this is what God has called me to do. The childhood dreams that I had are thus unfulfilled in order to fulfill the purposes that God has for my life. And the question that you should be thinking about is, what your life, right? What about your life? This is God's purpose for Abram. It's God's purpose for me. What is God's purpose for your life? What has God called you to do? And how is he preparing you for that work that perhaps you don't have a clue what it's going to be? And yet he's doing it now. He is at work in his purposes for your life. Now maybe you can look back and see how that's been true, right? Plans and purposes that you had. And God in his providence has worked things to bring about a different result. But he was preparing you for that. And he is now at this moment at work in your life to prepare you for perhaps the next place. You should be asking yourself the question, for what is God presently preparing me that I need to be ready for in the future? That I don't even know what it is yet. But he's training me. He is getting me ready so that you can look back one day and be amazed at God's hand. And the transition between Genesis 11 and 12 gives us this insight of the preparation of Abraham. That's the first thing that we should really take away, that God is preparing us for the work that he has for us one day in the future. But there's a second point here that's very clear that I want us to see. That when the Lord called out to Abraham, and we'll see that again later on in chapters 12, it is something that is utterly unique so far in the scriptures. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, a son of Terah's house, and it is the Lord. The question you want to ask yourself is, does Abram know who this is? The Lord, right? We read the Bible, we understand what that's talking about, right? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God, Yahweh, the only true God. But to Abram, he doesn't, he doesn't know this God because he has grown up in 
the east, the Ur of the Chaldeans, he's gone out away. And it is a fact of history that the predominant religious worship of the Chaldean people is that they were pagans, they were idolaters, and they were actually moon worshipers. Abram and Terah danced out in the moonlight and worshiped the moon, most likely. And the Lord called that man. This pagan, moon-worshipping idolater. The Lord calls him. Now, there's more details in all of that, but what I want us to see just for now is that this family, these people, the 19th man, the 20th man, Terah, Abram, these people are not just so wonderful that God can't help but love them and call out to them and longing to them. No, they're idolaters, they're pagans, they're moon-worshippers. And the point here that Genesis is saying is that those gods, the moon, the sun, the stars, are what? They are idols. They are false gods and therefore no gods whatsoever. Abraham is going to be called out of pagan idolatry to worship the one true and living God. And so are you. You are called out of your idolatry. And the book of Romans tells us that our primary idol lives inside of us. It's ourselves. Maybe you don't dance out in the moonlight, worshiping it. If you do, the elders are going to call you. (laughs) But you do struggle with idolatry. And Abram was called out of his idolatry, and we are called out of our idolatry. God plucks Abraham out of his life of idolatry to begin a story of redemption for all those who worship other gods to find the one true and living God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one final point here of application here for us is that we can see clearly is that in chapter 12 and verse 1, when it says, now the Lord, it is not just speaking of the exclusivity of the Lord in relationship to idols, but again, when your English Bible has the word Lord and it's in all capital letters, it's because it is distinguishing a particular name of God, namely Yahweh in Hebrew, the God of the covenant, the God of the promise, the God of Israel. But do you see here? Israel doesn't exist yet. There's no covenant promise to a people that doesn't even exist yet. And yet God is referring to himself as the God of promise, the God of peace, the God of hope, the God of love. And the point here is that God calls himself as the covenant Lord before there's even a covenant with Abraham because he is the God who initiates the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God whose redemption begins with his own plan. Notice that approach to God is not accomplished by what we do. If we are going to be near to God, it is because he must come to us, not we who make our way to him. And that's exactly what Genesis 11 told us, right? The climax of humanity's best abilities is scattered and thrown into ruins. You're getting yourselves nowhere doing it on your own, Genesis 11 says. If humanity is going to know the God that made it, the God who reigns over the earth he created, it is because he must come to us, not we make our way to him. 
God is going to call Abram. And you should ask yourself again the question, what's so good about him? Like, why not somebody else? The Bible doesn't tell us anything about Abram being like especially handsome or witty or knowledgeable or skilled in any sense whatsoever. More promising than any other Terah's sons. What's the point? The point is, is that God chooses Abram because of grace. It's just grace. It's God's purpose. It's his work. And here's the point of showing you this. Ask yourself the same question. Why has God loved me? Why has God chosen me? Why does God want anything to do with with me? There's 7.7 billion people in the world. What is it that inclines God toward, toward me, as you see yourself in the illustration here with Abram? Now, loved ones, if you think you know the answer to that question, you should experiment in your own head here on this. Why has God inclined himself toward you? If you think you know why, and you think you have the answer, and that answer begins with something that's within you, if you think that God is inclined to love you because of something within you, loved one, you don't have the first clue about what grace really is. What inclines God to Abram and what inclines God to you is fundamentally that God himself is gracious. Grace only makes sense when we begin with the one who is himself full of grace. It doesn't make sense if we begin with ourselves. The story of Abraham is not the story of the glory of Abraham. It is the story of the glory of the God of Abraham. And this sets this in this wonderful context for us. God and his grace to bring about a plan of salvation for recipients who are going to receive undeserved mercy that is all of him and from none of ourselves from this God of the covenant who is, has this eternal promise to deliver us from the bondage of sin. What Adam lost in the garden, God is going to work to restore through Abraham. That's why this is the greatest story ever told and this particular man God is going to bind himself to and give himself promises so that through Abraham the savior of the world is going to come but not for many many years and through many many trials this is coming to this cursed world the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ and what we want to do dear friends in this year is not only grow in our knowledge of this story, our knowledge of the Bible and how God's plan of salvation unfolds, but also to be staggeringly bewildered at the thought that God in his grace has set his affection upon us. Amazed at his grace and the incredible promises that he's given to give this race of sinners a savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your word gives to us such beautiful pictures, such wonderful stories 
Lord, we turn away from the, the, the thought that these are just fairy tales, for this is reality as your word teaches, and we are the children of Abraham, the Bible tells us. And so, Lord, would you please help us? Would you increase our faith? Would you grow us in our confidence in your great promises that you first made to Abraham and now to us? So, Lord, bless us, we pray, in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Edgington epc.org. May God bless and keep you.